Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this ideas lecture. And if you're not from the LSE, welcome to the LSE. It's a great pleasure to introduce our, our speaker, Professor Chai Levin. It says up here that he's a research fellow at Trinity College, University of Cambridge, but none of us actually believe that. <laughs> as far as we're concerned, he's LSE through and through. <laughs> he's one of ours. He came to the LSE in 1978 when he was extremely young. I think I have to add that. It was when we employed children as, as academics. <laughs> and he's been at the LSE uh, in until two, two years ago. Uh, he came as a member of the government uh, department, replacing Leonard Shapiro. He then became a professor in the government department and head of department, and then glutton for punishment, after a Hume Fellowship, he came back and became head of the International History Department. He hasn't entirely severed his links uh, with the LSE, and I would just like to say a couple of words about uh, uh, the LSE Ideas Russia program. Uh, even Paul Keenan and I are involved in bringing young Russian scholars over to the LSE, young historians, not from Moscow and Leningrad, St. Petersburg, but from the provinces, from the regions, for periods of one to three months to uh, work in the archives, work in the libraries, but also to network, to meet young scholars, to really have a different type of experience than they can possibly have in the provinces. And we're now in the third year of that project, which is very uh, successful, and we're, we're continuing with it for at least uh, another couple of years. But we're here to, to listen to Chai uh, on history. I mean, as I think you all know, he's got a remarkably distinguished record of, of publications, but he started with Russia and the First World War, and he then went on to write both about Russian history and the old regime, Russia's rulers and the old regime, nobility, uh, and his latest book on uh, Russia against Napoleon, which I'm sure you know was the winner of the Wilson History Prize. But he's also written about Russia and empire, uh, nobility and Europe. So it's a tremendous uh, breadth that he's written on. But he's come back to the First World War uh, because, of course, now he's had access to the archives, which weren't available uh, to us when we were postgraduate students. So we're very much looking forward to hearing Russia in the First World War. Time to think again. Thank you very much, Janet. Forgive me, I'm going to sit down. Um, old age and rheumatism has caught up with me. Um, my thanks to Janet. My thanks to Ideas, to Anna Westad and Mick Cox, and great to see an awful lot of old friends. The talk is a somewhat selfish one in the sense that um, time to think again, question mark, well I hope it's time to think again because I am thinking again, I'm writing this book. Uh, one of the interesting aspects of that is that um, I read the book I wrote 30 years ago for the first time in a very long time. And I have to say that the young man had talent. He had real possibilities, <laughs> which is nice to know. Um, what I am going to do in this uh, lecture, I hope anyway, is firstly to summarise for perhaps ten minutes, not more, um, the main conclusions, I think, of, uh, of that book, noting at the same time, very briefly, some of the factors which may have influenced at least my approaches, the questions I ask myself, as well as noting some of the ways in which, since I wrote the book 30 years ago, uh, things have happened which might, in principle, uh, lead one to, to rethink, to come to slightly different conclusions. 
then the main body of the lecture will be sort of four, again, brief vignettes, uh, really around my impressions, which I've already reached. I won't finish the book till the end of September, above all based on the work in the Russian archives, but also to some extent based on ideas I've had, new ways of thinking about the, the war, which have led me to, as you'll see, highlight uh, these four areas. And then a few minutes just on the conclusions, asking whether I have fundamentally changed uh, my opinions. All right. The first section, the book as I wrote it. Of course, it was written at the height of the Fisher era, meaning it was very difficult to write a book on the origins of the First World War without being very influenced by Fisher and by his thesis about the overwhelming importance of domestic factors in bringing on the First World War, looking at things, of course, in Germany. And to an extent, to an extent, by no means totally, uh, I sort of moved into the field uh, asking myself whether the Fisher thesis applied to Russia. Actually, I had some doubts even then as to whether it applied quite as much to Germany as, as was suggested by Fisher, but that's a different matter. As regards the impact of domestic factors, uh, the book certainly, my book, certainly took them extremely seriously and did think they were important. Uh, no question, and I remain convinced of this, that you know, the whole history of the Tsarist regime, the legitimacy of the regime, is intimately bound up with its claim, and to some extent the reality, that this regime had created and sustained Russia as a great power. Uh, the pride of the ruling elites of the dynasty itself absolutely tied in with that. Um, you know, the, I think the Romanovs go to bed in military pyjamas. They very seldom wear anything you know, non-military. Uh, and, of course, after the existential crisis, the near collapse of the regime in 1905, uh, more than ever... Uh, the crisis of legitimacy uh, is a great encouragement to regain, uh, to reassert uh, Russia's position as a great power after the humiliation of defeat by a mere Asiatic power. On top of that, the constitutional system, uh, you know, as Geoffrey Hosking, who's sitting here, uh, was the first person really to point out, uh, in the English language anyway, was based on uh, a deal between the regime and that narrow elite which was represented in the Third and Fourth Duma, which was quintessentially the old elite, the aristocracy, the gentry, uh, deeply military, and as they would have seen it, patriotic in their value system, caring enormously about Russia's position as a great power. So, you know, all those elements are there, and, you know, it is undoubtedly the case after 1905 that there is a desperate need uh, to regain legitimacy and that foreign policy is the obvious way in terms of that particular elite and regime to go for it. The problem, of course, though, is that 1905 is also a huge warning against foreign adventure. Uh, and I, in the end, felt that actually, as regards domestic factors, they just pulled very hard in different directions and that therefore trying to find the ultimate causes of Russia's involvement in the First World War through some kind of Fisher thesis just didn't make sense, because the pressures within were also, as I say, a great deterrent. 
uh, to adventure. The second area on which I concentrated a great deal is what I think nowadays people would call cultural history, values, etc. That, of course, owed something to James Joel from this university and his ideas about unspoken assumptions. It did also owe something to the fact that although Russia and the Origins of the First World War was my first book, it was not my thesis. My thesis was my second book, Russia's Rulers Under the Old Regime. Now, my thesis was very much about mentalities, values of the Tsarist elites. So, of course, I was sort of cultural history in an entirely push-me-pull-you-Heath-Robinson way, avant la lettre. Uh, I think it is a very important approach uh, questions of honour, questions of the duel, let us say. Uh, and I spent, for instance, a good deal of time analysing the education which so many of the top officials, particularly in the foreign ministry, received at just one small school, the Imperial Alexander Lise, a school which graduated about 22, 23 boys a year, uh, but produced every foreign minister except two between 1854 and 1914 including Alexander Zvolsky and his deputy, Nikolai Charikov, uh, Sergei Sazonov and his deputy, uh, Alexander Niratov, uh, also Vladimir Karkovtsev and a whole slew of Russian ambassadors. Uh, and I could go on about uh, this uh, way of approaching uh, the causation of Russian foreign policy, Russia's entry into the war absolutely important. It's also, I think, a way in which you see that there is a great similarity, in fact, in basic values, basic attitudes, between the obvious decision-makers, uh, Nicholas II, Sergei Sazonov, and what is often called public opinion, or other people. I mean, Nicholas II has fundamentally the values of a Tsarist colonel. You know, he, he, he entirely shares that basic mentality as regards honour. It is, after all, apart from anything else, the officer's duty to put himself out in front of the troops and, if necessary, get killed in the defence of regiment and fatherland. He had that mentality. It's difficult sharply to distinguish Sergei Sazonov's values from those, let us say, of members of the Third and Fourth Dumas, since quite apart from the others, one of them was his own brother. Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, Stalipin, the chairman of the Council of Ministers, is his brother-in-law. And this is true not just of Sazonov, but of the foreign ministry as a whole, precisely because of all the imperial ministries. As was typical in Europe at the time, the foreign ministry is the most aristocratic and gentry. And the third and fourth Dumas are absolute uh, nests of the gentry. Of course, you would not be at all surprised. Uh, that there is a great fundamental similarity in values. Of course, you know, the brother who spent his all, all his years in the foreign ministry thinks he knows more about diplomacy than the brother in the Duma. But the basic attitudes towards Russia's position in the world, honour, the dignity of Russia, what it owes to its history, no different to my mind. Um, and this, you know, as I say, matters and really is an explanation to understand... The mentalities of that elite, you have to realize that in relative terms, Russia has been a failure um, from 1854 down to 1914 in comparison to their memories of a glorious 18th century past, you know, which culminates in the defeat of Napoleon. 1905 is bad enough. The humiliation in the Bosnian crisis is even worse. One of the themes which runs through, I mean, Sergei Sazonov says this very sharply, um, that if anyone tries to impose a humiliation on them again, like 1909, and he says this in 1912 to the Austrian ambassador, this time we will fight, and they do. 
Even so, my most basic explanation, I think, um, was the old prima de Aussen politik, the old world of the history of international relations, the nature of the international system, the specific views of you know, Russia, Russia's rulers uh, towards Russian security, etc., etc., etc. More than anything else, more than anything else, it seemed to me in August 14, it is, in inverted commas, a rational decision based on the idea that if you don't stand up to this fundamental challenge to your interests, you will lose your allies in the Balkans, you will put your entire uh, system of international security uh, at great risk. And since that will almost certainly mean that within two or three years you'll be forced to fight anyway in a more disadvantageous position, better to fight now. This was my fundamental interpretation at the time. Um, As regards the short-term causes of the war, I had no doubt then that the main responsibility lay on Germany and Austria. What interested me was the question of whether the Germans and Austrians were to a significant degree right in their calculation that war with Russia was coming anyway, so better to have a go now, when their chances of winning were greater. Uh, My feeling then when I wrote the book was that the Germans and the Austrians did have significant reason to fear the way that Russia was going, but that actually that was not a justification for their complete overreaction. My sense was that the Russian domestic crisis and the nature of the decision-makers in Russia was such that they would never willingly take, a war, take the decision for war for, in order to dispel some kind of internal political problem. They would never take that decision lightly in any sense. And that on top of that, even Poincaré's France, uh, let alone the British, would never fight so that Russia could break up the Ottoman and Austrian empires. So that, roughly speaking, was where I stood at the time. As regards the influences subsequently, um, all sorts of ones. I mean, one, of course, has been the historiography. Uh, To some extent, historians pointing out that, you know, if you look back from August 1914 and shine a light backwards, you miss out an awful lot of what is going on actually outside, which is terribly relevant and provides alternative scenarios. Keith Nielsen did this. Uh, you know, for Britain, and I think very effectively. Ron Babroff, who was David Stevenson's student, I think did it well for Russia, and I think made a justified criticism of my book, that I didn't spend enough time thinking about the whole issue of Constantinople and the Straits. So I've taken that on board and thought about it. Of course, it helps that Fisher has been debunked, um, although he's been taken into the historical canon. It makes a big difference to me. Um, that unlike, shamefully, uh, when I wrote the book, I you know, now have German. So a big body of often exceptionally interesting scholarship, let, let alone, of course, all the original sources for the German and Austrian monarchies, uh, is available. And then, of course, there's the Russian archives, closed completely, the foreign and military archives. When I wrote the book, <clears throat> I spent five months in them last year. So that is the first section. That's where I started and what might have changed since. There are other things as well, but I won't talk about them. All right, the main body of what I'm going to say. The first of my little vignettes, or my little thoughts. Uh, One thing which strikes me very strongly, um, reading the materials in the archives, rereading much of the, the 
you know, very voluminous uh, published correspondence, uh, etc., is the obsession with England, Britain, as one's supposed to call it. The Russians called it England. Um, Benkendorf, the ambassador in London, you know, Britain is the guarantee of our western frontier against German aggression. Uh, the Russian military attaché in Berlin, 99, height of the Bosnian crisis, writes to Petersburg, the Germans will probably go to war if they think that Britain won't fight. If they think that Britain will fight, they probably won't. Dolgoruki, the ambassador in Rome, asked by Sazonov, uh, what will the Italian view on Russia's rights at the Straits be? It all depends on the English. One could just multiply this over and over again. Sergei Sazonov, by 13-14, is obsessed with the British, terrified apart from anything else, that the fact that the British have won the naval race with Germany is going to mean de-escalation, detente, etc., etc. Obsessed to the extent that you know they don't want George V to go to the wedding of the Kaiser's daughter without Nicholas II holding his hand all the time. You know, when George V goes off to talk to Bettmann Holweg, Nicholas II goes with him in case you know, they get up to some conspiracy. It is an obsession. A uh, very interesting diary of Schilling. Uh, Maurice Schilling, who's the head of Sazonov's Chancery, winter 1314, fascinating conversations with uh, Sazonov, his boss, close friend. And he says to Sazonov, you know, this is your main worry, isn't it? An Anglo-German reconciliation, to which Sazonov says, yes, that would be the end of our world, essentially. And it's interesting to ask why, with this rather pathetic little army and, you know, the strange habits of the English, why anyone should, you know, worry so much. And I think it actually goes down to a perception of what the next war is going to be. And that's important. Uh, it's to do with the fact, of course, that it is very widely believed, not least by Sazonov, uh, that British involvement will result in the disintegration of the German economy very quickly and therefore of the German home front. One month, two months, three months if the Germans are lucky. And again, this theme runs through uh, the Russian correspondence. One interesting point is to remember Ivan Bloch, uh, you know, who wrote this famous book on the future war at the end of the 19th century. Now, Bloch is usually taken in the English language literature to mean all war in the future is senseless uh, because the economic consequences will be so awful. And he does mean that. And, you know, the Russians, when they read him, do, you know, take that on board as well. But, of course, the Russians also read a very important subtext in Bloch, which is that although all the states will suffer, it is the economically most advanced who will suffer and collapse first. Of all the great powers, Russia is the one which will last out much the longest because we are self-sufficient and because, in inverted commas, we're backward. And if you actually look, for instance, at the, the, the main Russian military writers on the future war, that's what they pick up on with Bloch. And that's what, actually, the diplomats pick up on. Remember... The Russian foreign ministry is behind the first Hague peace conference. Schilling, who is the man I've been talking about, Sazonov's head of chancery, is the secretary to the Russian delegation. He writes the precy on Bloch, uh, which is then presented you know, at the peace conference. Also, that helps you to explain how Sukhumlinov, the war minister, can basically say, look, the only real danger is a short war, because the Germans can win that, and they may, may well win it. That's what we've got to guard against. A long war, 
no fuss. You know, <laughs> that, that's in our pocket. And Migulin, Professor Migulin, who is the main Russian academic expert on war finance and these things, says exactly the same. So it's an interesting little set of ideas coming together. Second little vignette, uh, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Well, I could spend six lectures on this. Um, obviously, I wrote a significant amount of this in the book, and I've done quite a lot of more reading and thinking since. Much of that actually confirms many of my basic ideas at the time. Uh, I mean, one of them, this is, as I say, the nest of the gentry. And it is not an entire coincidence that the Russian aristocracy and gentry produced two of Europe's most famous anarchists in the 19th century, uh, Pyotr Kropotkin and Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin. I mean, there are no professional anarchists um, in the Russian foreign minister, though the first ministry, though the first Soviet uh, commissar, Chicherin, does serve there briefly. Um, but there is, you might say, a number of amateur anarchists of various sorts. The most normal form of anarchy is simply to sort of snooze on the job. And it is actually quite astonishing. I don't think it's necessarily that different to other diplomats. What a colossal amount of time these people spend going on leave, um, complaining about their stomachs. All their wives have nervous breakdowns. I mean, the, the reason why the Russian ambassador in Berlin is just not there for the whole crisis is that his wife flatly refuses um, to leave Russia. So um, the ambassador in Vienna's wife is in a lunatic asylum. Car- no, that's a nasty way of putting it. I think it what was it called at the time. Um, so instead of, I mean, he's trying to fish her out of the lunatic asylum half. But my loveliest one, one of the diplomats I actually rather like, an interesting, funny man, Old Nikludov, um, the minister in Sofia and then the minister in Stockholm during the war. There's this marvellous moment when Nikludov, who was much inclined to philosophical discourse, gets a thought of Sazonov, the foreign minister, by suggesting that Russia come to a compromise peace with the Ottoman Empire, which of course cuts right across Sazonov's determination to filch the straits um, and Constantinople. And Sazonov tells him rather sharply that, you know, this isn't... Well, he ignores him, basically. So Nikludov writes this rather indignant letter to Schilling, saying, um, you know, this is the Russian minister in Stockholm. He's not a bureaucrat. He's not an official. Um, He is uh, a man from a family which has been advising the Tsar since the early 17th century. Um, uh, And they've been advising the Tsars, among other things, on the Middle East and Slav affairs. And he's been studying this since the age of 20, and he knows an awful lot about it. And in any event, his basic view is that, um, you know, he's there to serve the emperor and to express his opinions without fear or favor, even if they're not directly relevant to his position in Stockholm, because no doubt, you know, the emperor would like to know. Um, And, of course, he doesn't take it for granted that the foreign minister is going to follow his opinions, but he thinks a respectful listening to them is the way that gentlemen behave. Brings out some of the sort of, you know, um, I liked it. Um, that is, in a way, too much of a caricature. I think at the top of the foreign ministry, there is some distinctly, as you might say, dead wood. There are also a lot of brains, one, one level lower down. Um, just talk very briefly about three individuals, actually two of them in the middle ranks, one higher, um, who bring out some of the intelligence, but also some of the very different points of view. One of them will be very familiar to anyone who's read my book. It's Prince Grigory Trubitskoy. Um, Trubitskoy is a terribly interesting man. He is essentially the head of the, well, what used to be called the Asiatic Department, in other words, the Balkan and Middle Eastern Department in the Foreign Ministry in the years before, well, from 1912 to 14. He is one of the key three decision-makers 
um, in the foreign ministry in July 14. What is very interesting about him, among other things, is that of all the key decision makers in July 1914, diplomats, he is the only one who has written about, as you might say, the theory of foreign policy, the theory of international relations, the nature of power, in a sort of avant la lettre democratic peace theory, um, identity politics in international relations. And the reason he's done this is that for six years he was out of the foreign ministry and was helping his brother to edit a journal for which he was the main contributor on international relations and foreign policy. So he is very fascinating. Got lots of new material on Trubetskoy, some of which I haven't had time yet to read, but I'm in the middle of it right now. He is fascinating and important in the sense that he locates foreign policy quite apart from realpolitik and balance of power in a perception of Russian identity which is linked to the traditional idea as Russia as an orthodox and Slav power owing to its history. Uh, leadership, you know, its role as leadership and leader and protector of the Balkan Slavs, the orthodox, you name it. Um, and this he ties in with, of course, a realpolitik defense of this line, we need these people on our side against the push for Germanic hegemony of Europe. Interesting as a reflection on an era when, after all, you know, already over the horizon are coming the splits, the great, as you like, battle of the 20th century, which is not just a geopolitical one. You know, the Anglo-American alliance, which in the end comes out on top, is much more than pure geopolitics. It's also an ethno-ideological alliance. You could say the same about the Germanic alliance in Central Europe. Uh, this is Trubetskoy's answer, uh, and it is fascinating. But what's also fascinating, of course, is that if you're trying to answer the question to what extent the government is influenced by public opinion, you almost find that un unanswerable, since Trubetskoy is public opinion, you know. He is the man, as I tried to say in the book, who you know, is close to Pyotr Struva, um, trying to bring the industrialists and the Moscow intelligentsia together behind a nationalist program, etc., etc. But actually, you know, the letters I've been reading in the archives and some of the other material, private correspondence, just brings out how completely central a figure he was in that world of Moscow and Petersburg, public intellectuals trying to link pride in Russian tradition, support for the power of the Russian state, with, you know, mobilizing public opinion, reconciling it in, the, it in the state, behind a policy, if you like, of liberal imperialism linked to a fundamentally Slavophile conception of Russia's destiny. Uh, after all, Trubetskoy only took the position as head of the Asiatic Department of the Foreign Ministry when he failed to get into the Fourth Duma at the elections. Um, all his friends are in the room. There's a lovely moment when, um, you know, he's a friend of Milyukov, the liberal leader apart from anything else, and he introduces Milyukov to, you know, his diplomatic colleagues who write to him say, oh, we'd never have, you know, shaken the hand of this man if it wasn't you. The only trouble is that the, one of the things that the, the foreign ministry does is intercept foreign diplomats' telegrams back, you know. There's a lovely moment, and they all go up to Nicholas II, these intercepts, who reads them avidly, wasn't too happy to hear the comment of the uh, Bulgarian minister, which said that, you know, uh, Milyukov's in with Trubetskoy every day. Trubetskoy never does a thing without asking Milyukov. Great exclamation marks in the margin, you know, to Sergei Sazonov, the foreign minister. 
So Trubetskoy, a very interesting man, right at the other end of the foreign ministry in terms of basic understanding of Russia's role in the world and its core interests, Roman Rosen, Baron Roman Romanovich von Rosen, to give him his full name, formerly minister in Tokyo before the Japanese war, ambassador in Washington. So a, a very different career path to the more normal European um, core career path of the, most of the top diplomats. Again, Rosen was in my book. I mean, his argument is fundamentally Russia's future lies in Asia. Uh, this is where we must develop our resources for that time when there will be not as now 170 million or 150 million Russians, but 400 million. Or as Mendeleev, the main Russian public intellectual scientist, is arguing 600 million by 2000. Um, all these predictions are very important in terms of you know, the basic ways that uh, you know, people are thinking about the future. So for Rosen, it is developing Siberia, opening up the maritime province, shifting the main center of gravity of the Russian population, of Russian industry, and therefore of Russian viewpoints eastwards. And I did understand this, you know, when I wrote the book all those years ago. What I had not understood was that Rosen was the brother of Victor von Rosen, who is in many ways the leader and founder of the Eurasianist, or Orientalist, uh, push in Russian academia. Uh, and I found myself a research assistant who I sent scurrying into the archive of the Academy of Sciences to read all the letters between the brothers. As often happens to us poor historians, the letters were mostly about what they'd had for breakfast and whether their mother was going to leave them anything in her will. <laughs> but there was, nevertheless, it was a clear sign that the two brothers got on very well and were close. It is, again, very fascinating uh, that here in the foreign ministry you have reflected, you know, in the closest possible way through this relationship, a fundamentally different view of Russian interests. With Rosen for, for help, saying, give up these damn Slavs in the Balkans. The best thing on earth for us is if the Austrians swallow the, the Serbs and if they can swallow the Bulgarians too, great for us because they will get a stomachache, you know, and they'll be busy. Meanwhile, We'll run off with, you know, our real business in Siberia. As for the Straits, and he was realistic on this, he said, look, all our ideas about the Straits are really exaggerated, even if we get them, even if we get out into the Mediterranean. Uh, what does that mean? We'll be in the happy position of the Italians who spend their entire life complaining that they're in a closed sea, all exits from which are blocked by the British. That was an interesting one. But actually, my newest discovery, who I knew nothing about when I wrote the first book, is a character called Alexander Gears, nephew of the old foreign minister Gears, son of a senior state finance official, the first cousin of Nikolai Gears uh, and Mikhail Gears, the ambassadors in Constantinople and Vienna before 1940. Just a little example that, as you might say, the foreign ministry was a cousinry. A cousinry. Uh, Alexander Gears is very like Trubetskoy in many ways, comes out of the foreign ministry in disgust in 1906, writes angrily that, you know, the policy in East Asia, the debacle against Japan has ruined Russia's position in Europe and betrayed centuries of Russian commitment to the Slavs and the Balkans, terribly committed to the idea of a foreign policy which will be rooted also in Russian educated public opinion and patriotic opinion. Uh, 
becomes the first head of Alexander Izvolsky's new press section in the foreign ministry, very much committed to this idea. Um, Interesting that Izvolsky's diaries in the archive, before he becomes foreign minister, say, look, I haven't got a clue about Russian foreign policy, because nobody keeps any... He'd been minister in Copenhagen. He's basically there to make sure that the Dowager Empress has a good dinner, because, you know, she's a princess of Denmark and she spends a lot of time there. But he says, you know, the foreign ministry never tells us anything about their policy. They tell the ambassadors, but not us ministers. My one real commitment, he writes, is that we must have a foreign policy which is linked to Russian public opinion. We must relink the state with Russian society. And so Gears and he, you know, absolutely partners in crime. And then, of course, the whole thing goes, as you might say, upside down in the Bosnian crisis. And Alexander Gears decides that Russian public opinion is, in some ways, actually not necessarily the, right, the wisest guide to Russian foreign policy. And he and Stalipin fall out. Uh, and there's an interesting, then, evolution of Alexander Gears. Sazonov gets rid of him. Alexander Gears makes himself a real nuisance. And Sazonov finally gets rid of him to be minister in Montenegro, which is not one of the you know, pleasure spots of uh, Rus- uh, European diplomacy at the time. But Gears develops a number of very interesting lines. Firstly, he is very committed to the idea that the Russian foreign ministry must be integrated into the Council of Ministers. It must educate the other ministers in terms of the realities of Russian foreign policy. It itself must make policy with a constant awareness of the demands of Russia's internal situation. Gears is terrified of revolution. If war comes, of revolution. And that is much of the justification for his attempt to persuade Sergei Sazonov to operate always within the context of the Council of Ministers. But there's a specific element here as well. Gears is on very close terms with the chairman of the Council of Ministers, Vladimir Karkovtsev. They address each other as two. That's the Russian familiar. Adult Russian men do not address each other in the familiar unless they are very close friends. I took it that Alexander Gears must have been at the Lycée with Sazonov, since everybody else seemed to be. Well, his father was at the Lycée, but he wasn't, so I still haven't worked out quite what the nature of this relationship was, but it was very close. And Gears also addresses Kakovtsev's wife as to And what he is actually doing in 1911-1912 is trying to use Kakovtsev to push his particular line on foreign policy, which is peace at all price. Uh, and he's also feeding the ideas of his cousins, particularly the ambassador in Vienna, in through Kalkovtsev, which is one reason why Sazonov kicks him off to Montenegro. Uh, being in Montenegro persuades Sazonov more than ever that Russia is putting itself in immense danger as acting as the guarantor for ideas about great Serbia and its future. And he writes really very fascinating memoranda on this point, including after Sarajevo, at which point he says, look, enough is enough. This is the moment when we have to realize what really is important in terms of Russia's interests. We simply cannot afford uh, to be the guarantor of this Serbia and its long-term ambitions. By now, he's moved over to the idea we must disentangle Balkan policy from policy as regards the Straits. And, of course, he knows that Nicholas cares about the Straits and Constantinople, doesn't basically care about the Balkans. So it's a very fascinating combination of tactics and a fundamental view of Russian foreign policy. Third little vignette, 
the Russian, minister, the Russian mission in Belgrade. Very interesting. Uh, read a huge amount of documents in the archives on this, both in the Foreign Ministry archive and in the military archive, but also finally secured the unpublished memoirs of Strandman, the Russian number two in Belgrade, seven or 800 pages of them, uh, which I knew existed in 1983, but Strandman's daughter, I think it was not his widow, it was his daughter had got them under the bed in Washington and was convinced that anyone who wanted to look at them was KGB, so I couldn't rootle them out. Um, this is very interesting stuff. Of course, the, the mission in Belgrade is crucial in this run-up to the war. Far too much to say here, but just give you, for instance, uh, autumn 1913, Europe very nearly went over the edge in the spring over the Balkan crisis uh, and in specifically over arguments about Albania, whether there would be an independent Albania, how big it would be, whether the Serbs would get a sea coast. You know, by dint of extraordinary efforts, war is avoided. And the Treaty of London is signed, setting out the boundaries of this new Albania, etc., etc. Pasic, the Serbian Prime Minister is away and his right-hand man, Spalajkovic, is in charge of the Foreign Ministry. Hartvig, the Russian Minister, is away. Hartvig is absolutely Pasic's ally. So Spalajkovic summons in Strandman, the Russian number two, the charge at the time, and says, look, uh, we have got this tame ex-Ottoman Albanian general and we are funneling in arms to him uh, and we've you know, succeeded in buying up all sorts of supporters for him and we're going to stage an insurrection uh, because after all no one can expect us to allow our national tasks uh, to be essentially obstructed Uh, but don't tell Petersburg about this don't tell Petersburg and it's that last line the idea that the foreign minister of another country can tell the Russian official representative that he is about to do something which puts European peace and therefore the fate of the Russian Empire at risk and that he mustn't tell his own foreign minister. That tells you something about what was going on in that mission. Uh, And it is largely confirmed by Strandman's memoirs. Of course, when you read Hartwig's line, it is essentially, and I'm being crude, war is very likely. The Serbs, particularly after the way their army has shown itself in 1213, will be a huge ally. They are the only state in the Balkans on whom we can rely. Therefore, and the only person who has any chance of holding them in our camp without going right overboard war tomorrow is Pasic, so we back him. Of course, Hartwig didn't put it quite that openly because he's constantly not passing on to Sazonov and Petersburg what is being said and, frankly, lying to them about what he himself is saying to the Serbs. As for Atomonov, the military attaché, fascinating character. Can't go into this in any detail, but again, just one of many, many examples. Fascinating correspondence, winter of 11-12, about the Black Hand and Apis. This is the organisation which gives, after all, the weapons to Princip and co., which, you know, killed Franz Ferdinand. Atamonov writes that, well, this, it's, these are two very long and complicated reports. What he's essentially saying is that this place is a snake's pit, and the various factions in the army 
and the various factions in Pashich's ruling radical party are totally entwined, at war with each other but also with the opposition parties. When the government finally is forced to mount an inquiry about allegations, you know, that the black hand is up to all sorts of wickedness, reports Artamonov, the government itself is so completely tied in with the black hand that the official investigation ends up by kicking out the whistleblowers um, and uh, acquitting the people who are actually behind all this. Well, that says something about the justification of the Austrian claim, after all, that if you left any investigation within Serbia simply to serve hands, no hope. On the other hand, Atamonov says he himself had been approached indirectly by the Black Hand, and of course, he writes, refused to have anything whatsoever to do with uh, you know, what is essentially a conspiratorial uh, society which is led by people who are pursuing personal and dangerous aims. It's also interesting that he says nothing about the Black Hand's operations outside Serbia. So I see no reason to think that Artamonov himself was in any event, in any way involved. Uh, in the run of, in fact, I see every reason not to, not least because there are fascinating documents from 14, early 14, first half, um, in which essentially he's talking to members of the Serbian general staff. And the basic conclusion is very simple. We are very, very vulnerable. Most vulnerable in 1914, still very vulnerable in 1915. Leave us to 1917, the Austrians will face 600,000 good troops on their southern front. Atamonov is not an idiot. He's not going to deliberately, you know, start a war uh, in 1914. So it's an interesting, and there are lots of fascinating documents there. Finally, of my four little vignettes, what you might describe as decision-making. And here I sort of stand back a bit. I mean, one of the things which unites a great many political systems at this time, all the way from Spain to Italy, many of the Balkan states, to some extent Austria, it's more complicated, Russia, Japan, Germany, is that for a variety of reasons, but I think fundamentally because they are not prepared to accept the principle of popular sovereignty or the, that, the implications of that would be, they have to find alternative bases for sovereignty, which in the world at that time can only actually be found in monarchy in the traditional, historical, and to some extent religious foundations of an alternative system of legitimacy. And there are variations on this, but there is one common factor here, right in the middle of these systems of government, as a supremely important factor, is the monarchy and usually the monarch. Now, the more I look at it, the more, of course, it is impossible for a single human being to be head of state and head of government for his adult life, uh, not least if that particular individual is chosen by fate. And what you get across the board is actually so often a hole at the middle of political systems, which, of course, either is not filled with disastrous consequences or is filled with disastrous consequences. Um, at one level, it's the Russians and the Japanese who are right out on one limb in the sense that even Kaiser Wilhelm, let alone the Spanish and the Italian monarchs, 
they are fundamentally operating within what is by now uh, you know, a system of legitimation which you might describe as... Um, What's the word when you're trying to avoid getting a stomachache? In other words, it's sort of fundamentally rational. It's, it's not that people really, in most cases, any longer believe in divine right or some you know, non-rational system of legitimation. They're just opposed to popular sovereignty. Russia and Japan, you still have monarchs. I can see Alan looking at me. I, Austria is somewhere. Yes, I know. Um, but Russia and Japan are the furthest, I would say. And of course, the key difference between the Russian and the Japanese is that although both of them have, you know, really powerful legitimating principles uh, for monarchy, nobody actually expects the Japanese monarch as such to do anything. Russia's at the exact opposite end. The whole point about the Russian monarch is that, you know, he's supposed to stomp round like Tyrannosaurus Rex. This is the sort of, you know, image. Um, and, of course, that does help to explain such of, you know, many of Nicholas II's problems. Whatever else he was, he was not Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, I could go on a lot about this, but won't. I think the a key, certainly a key issue in the Russian setup, and here the comparison with Germany is above all essential, is that Russia does not have a chancellor. And therefore you have really quite interesting problems trying to work out who in the end is most important in making the decisions. Um, it's one of three. It's the emperor, the foreign minister, and the chairman of the council of ministers. Um, it's the chairman of the council of ministers who is the biggest uh, problem. Because in constitutional law, the chairman of the council of ministers has no role in the making of foreign, foreign policy. And if you look at one of the three chairmen of the Council of Ministers between 1905, 1906, uh, and 1914, Ivan Garemikin, that is just about the reality. If you look at Pyotr Stalipin, his role is mixed until the Bosnian crisis, and then he actually is the key figure in Russian foreign policy. From the breaking of the Bosnian crisis in September, October 1908 till his death, in the autumn of 1911. It does, I mean, he's complete, Alexander Izvolsky is terrorized into doing nothing without, uh, you know, um, Stalipin. And Sergei Sazonov, after all, is Stalipin's little brother-in-law. Um, you know, he's almost his running dog. Stalipin dies in the autumn of 1911, and then you have a different uh, set up. Uh, Sazonov and Kakovtsev, the new chairman, edge off against each other and then decide they're allies until Kakovtsev is kicked out at the beginning of 14, and then Sazonov is supreme. Uh, so it's a very interesting shifting balance, but Sazonov is supreme with always the proviso that the emperor is behind him. Uh, and Nicholas II you know, is, in the end, the person who ultimately decides who will be his foreign minister, who on occasion, you know, sticks the foreign minister in the ribs and says, you know, this is what I want. And he does do that sometimes. And of course, in the end, is the person who makes the decision in July 14. So it's a complicated one. It's made more complicated by the nature of the Russian ministerial system. 
You know, whatever else the Council of Ministers was, it was not a cabinet in any meaningful British sense. There was no sense of collective responsibility. Ministers were technical experts in their own departments who in most cases had spent their whole careers, or most of them, in those departments. And again, they were very disinclined to speak or take responsibility for anything outside their own departmental neck of the woods. Fascinating moment in the key meeting of the Council of Ministers. I have a sort of blow-by-blow record from the archives, which is fun, um, which decides that they can't stand up to Germany and Austria uh, in March 1909. Stalipin's ill. No one mentions the threat of domestic revolution because the Minister of the Interior is not there. It's his job to mention that. Instead, Vladimir Kakovtsev, who is... Well, he's not chairing, because Nicholas is chairing, but he's the senior person, launches into one of his normal tirades about the dreadful financial consequences, because he's the Minister of Finance. He has a right to say that. And, of course, then the whole thing comes to an end, because the Minister of War stands up and says, actually, the army can't fight anyway. Um, so what, you know. But it is fascinating. And then again, uh, October, November 1912, when... You know, the First Balkan War and the crisis over Austrian-Serbian confrontation uh, is reaching its height. The Council of again, we've got the record from the archives. Very fascinating. The issue is whether Russia will essentially take quite provocative military measures. And the Minister of War, Sukhumlinov, has already got Nicholas's provisional agreement to this. Kakovtsev and Sazonov hear about this and are appalled and get Nicholas to agree that this should be discussed in the full Council of Ministers. No single minister raises a squeak. They all support Sukhumlinov, including very conservative ministers who are terrified of revolution, but they haven't got a right to oppose His Majesty's Minister of War on a military issue. The only two who do are Sazonov and Kakovtsev, because they have a right as chairman of the Council of Ministers and as foreign minister, and Nicholas in the end supports them. But it does also help to explain why the Minister of the Interior, Maklakov, doesn't say a word in the crucial meeting of the Council of Ministers which decides to back Serbia in July uh, 1914 and is not even invited to the meeting on the next day, which Nicholas II presides over. When the order for generalization, general mobilization comes round to the Ministry of the Interior, because the Minister of the Interior has to sign it, countersign it, Maklakov says, for the masses, domestic revolution is much more important than the fight against a foreign enemy, but we cannot af- uh, avoid our fate, and makes the sign of the cross. Uh, tells you something about some of the realities. All right, so those were four of my vignettes. I could have chosen another 102. I've got about 10 more minutes. All right? Good, good. Conclusions. Conclusions. Um, I think, you know, if I was going to go back to those three divisions where I started, I think perhaps I might stress the importance of domestic factors and their influence on a more aggressive foreign policy slightly more than I did all those years ago. Now, that might be just because I'm a cantankerous old devil and, you know, to an extent, since everybody else was going on about domestic factors and Fisher was on the prowl, um, I was much inclined to take the opposite point of view out of sheer cussedness. But I don't think it's just that. Uh, And it actually is linked to what I've just been talking about. 
it is the, you know, the institutional structure and the, as you might say, culture of Russian ministers and the higher governmental system does lessen the ability of those who are most passionately aware of the domestic danger. Um, and the foreign ministry people, and of course the military people, who so often make you know, the, the really key decisions, to a great extent, in most cases anyway, simply live outside the world of worrying about domestic... It's just not their business to worry about domestic politics. I wouldn't want to push it too far. Um, you know, of course, uh, even Sergei Sazonov, let alone Alexander Krivoshein um, in 1914, Nicholas II, of course they're aware of the domestic dangers. But, as I say, I would be somewhat more inclined to stress uh, domestic factors than I was you know, back then in 1983. On the culture side, I would stand by what I said then. Um, actually, most of what I've read very much reinforces that kind of approach. I think perhaps my biggest shift would be in terms of prima de Außenpolitik. Not that, in a way, I don't still believe that. Um, I think the international system, security, all these issues are of overwhelming importance. I do still, on the whole, think of the Tsarist government in 1914 as being the victim more than the perpetrator. But standing back from this sort of blame game, and this really to some extent reflects the work I've done on empire, I do actually see a sort of, you know, general international crisis, which put at its crudest, can be summed up this way, that on the one hand, uh, it was widely accepted that the future belonged to great powers and only great powers of continental scale. Uh, this was the fundamental geopolitical logic underlying the age of imperialism. Look, to put things crudely, the basic problem with the pan-Germans is that they were half right. Um, you know, if you were going to count in the 20th century, you were going to be continental in scale. Um, it's not a coincidence that Europe counts for very little in today's world, and the Chinese, the Indians, and the Americans are the people that, you know, we're worrying about. On the other hand, it seemed equally self-evident that by far the most effective way to legitimize and therefore make effective a polity and its various branches, not least a conscript army, was nationalism defined through ethnicity, language, and history. So you had, not always, of course, because sometimes that kind of nationalism reinforced, if it was the nationalism of the majority, to some extent reinforced uh, the push for empire. But it also, in many cases, ran up against it. The, the idea that somehow empire is a force in decline facing vibrant nationalism is wrong. It's that you've got what appear to be the dominant force of the future in international relations and the dominant force of the future in domestic politics bashing into each other. Um, and that is very real, you know, when you're looking at the Ottomans, the Habsburgs and the Russians. But after all, there is a very large crisis in somewhere called Ireland, which is where my new book begins, actually, in 1914, which is precisely a crisis of empire. And Russian comments on Britain and its crisis are actually terribly interesting. 
Just, again, leave you with one tiny vignette. I mean, the most influential columnist in the most influential newspaper in Russia in 1914, Mikhail Menshikov, Norve Vreme, also part proprietor by then of the um, newspaper, not at all interested in pan-Slavism, regards it as complete hogwash, uh, but simply a way in which, you know, Slav politicians in the Balkans can hoodwink Russia into defending their interests at its expense. Nevertheless, he hates Austria and is convinced that a war with Austria in the near to medium future is inevitable. Even, and this is odd for Menshikov because he's no kind of warmonger, he's a horrible man, but he's no warmonger. Um, And the reason for that's got nothing to do with the Balkans. It's to do with the fact, and here, you know, there is a growing wave of feeling among Russian elites that the big crisis coming up is Ukraine. Uh, This is where the biggest threat uh, to Russian power to their whole understanding of Russia as a polity is coming from. Uh, Mienchikov is obsessed by this. Struva is obsessed by this. Uh, Even Schilling is beginning to talk about it. Nicholas II is beginning to talk about it in early 14. Uh, It it does bring out uh, the fact that what is usually seen as an Ottoman or maybe an Ottoman and Austrian crisis of empire is very much at the heart of the Russian crisis as well. So that's one, uh, something I would add to Prima de Außenpolitik, its empire, which is both outside and internal policy. The other set of ideas really comes out of a course which I taught with Sebastian Balfour and Veselin Dimitrov, both of them here, about the second Europe, the European periphery. It's terribly interesting for me, for instance, to read Sebastian's work on the Spanish-American War and to find that the Spanish regime knew it was going to lose against America but felt that if it didn't fight and conceded it would itself fall but that if it did fight and lost it would probably survive. And then the comment of Romanones that so great an empire with such a tradition could only finally dissolve honorably through defeat in war or the king's role in Spanish politics or the fragility, the weakness of the European state on the periphery, and not just the state, but also of integrating factors. I can't remember the statistic which Sebastian cited. I think the biggest Spanish national newspaper, genuinely national, circulation of less than 20,000, its French equivalent, a million. And I thought of Russia, even at the most basic point of a so-called Russian police state, which is police. There were fewer state police in the small towns and countryside of Russia in 1900, well over 100 million people than the British employed at the same time in the small towns and countryside of Ireland. You know, helps to understand the fragility of it all. Uh, And then, of course, imperialism. You know, the idea that this is how you make up for this deep sense of inadequacy vis-à-vis your failure to, to copy the successes of the European core. There's this constant comparison a constant sense of failure and inadequacy, you also try and do it as regards empire. Alfonso XIII on empire, Giolitti in Italy on empire. And then you think of you know, the, the fact that the Spanish liberal monarchy, after all, falls after the catastrophe at Anual. Adua almost brings down, or you know, really threatens the Italian liberal monarchy. The Russo-Japanese war comes within an inch of bringing down the Tsarist regime. So these sort of thoughts you know, very much do exercise me when I'm trying to link in a broader set of issues with the immediate decision for war. But as regards the immediate decision, I haven't changed my basic idea 
but this is the decision taken in Vienna and Berlin above all else. Um, I, I don't... Look, I haven't got round to very carefully reading uh, all my notes and books, uh, etc., and documents on July yet. But I've done an awful lot of reading, and I think the argument that the Russians are trying to precipitate a war is complete nonsense, um, total nonsense. What I think is, of course, much more to the point is that old argument about you know, just to what extent particularly Berlin is justified in looking uh, to the future with real alarm. And again, you know, one goes back to Jeffrey's book all those years ago. After all, you know, uh, the people who are most gung-ho in terms of aggressive foreign policy, nationalism, are precisely the people who most Western historiography uh, has blamed Nicholas II for for not conceding power to them. You know, it is a bit of a shock to the system to find that even Rasputin is making a damn sight more sense in terms of foreign policy in 1913 than the president of the Duma, who is at a certain level a hero for you know, Western liberal historiography. Um, well, if that's true, you can understand why you might worry um, you know, if you're sitting in Berlin. Again, though, I find it very hard to imagine Nicholas II or Sazonov deliberately precipitating a crisis in order to deflect. Uh, that's not going to happen, partly because they're too terrified and partly because actually within their own context, these are not people uh, who are warlike. These are not people who actually desire war. Of course, on the other hand, you could imagine a crisis at Constantinople uh, three or four years down the line in which the Russians would certainly take a much stronger line uh, You know, if their navy and army are... Uh, further along the line in terms of development. So, you know, I can understand what's going on in Berlin. I think they were wrong, but I can understand it. I think an interesting one is the French. I mean, if any power had a sort of interest, if you like, in going for broke in 14, it is in a sort of way France, because it is perfectly clear that France's power is peaking and is going to go down from now on. It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to sustain... Well, it's unlikely. Not, you know, and the Russians are saying this, the, the three-year service law for forever. You know, this, after all, came in in a wave of patriotism after the Moroccan crisis. France's relative power in the dual alliance vis-à-vis -vis Russia is falling with every day. Uh, and on top of that, you know, the long-term factors are clear. French demography, French industry are falling further and further behind. So if you're going to make a scenario, I would have said it's France, which you'd look at. And certainly, if you look at what the French were saying to the Russians, um, concession and compromise is not in it. Um, you know, Delcasse talking to Schilling, <laughs> winter 13, 14, slightly makes your hair stand on end. But, but... Actually, you know, over the Albanian crisis in 13, where the French could have had a war tomorrow um, if they, you know, said, why didn't you go for it, mate, you know, were there. Or over the Lehman von Sanders crisis and the whole issue of Constantinople of the Straits in January 14. Do the French push Russia forward? No, they don't. On the contrary, they restrain them, let alone the British. It's very interesting that the ambassadors in London and Paris, Benkendorf and Izvolsky, are saying to Sazonov, hey, stop. You know, you're going well ahead of our allies, so just be careful. The Triple Entente is actually holding Russia back to the extent that anyone needs to in 14, and the Germans are not holding the Austrians back in July 14. There is still that crucial difference. So you know, that's roughly where I would end, except, of course, to say that you know, I, 
this obviously does matter. I, have my, you know, I used to have dreams when I was writing my last book about defeating Napoleon. They were rather cheerful. Now I'm back to having nightmares about the First World War. Um, I don't need to you know, underline the fact that it was... I had this conversation with the Emperor Franz Josef in a dream about two weeks ago. <laughs> we, we, we came to the conclusion that the First World War had been a mistake. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it seems to me that without the First World War, very hard to imagine Hitler. I can imagine the Bolsheviks coming to power in Russia. I can't imagine them surviving in power. I also believe that the First World War was above all else a war between Germany and Russia for the domination of Central Europe and therefore for hegemony throughout Europe. And that a war which ends with the defeat of Germany and Russia and a peace settlement made against both of them is very unlikely to survive. Particularly since it would not have been made without American intervention in Europe and is then further undermined by the withdrawal of the United States. So all of that, you know, the shadow is long. And of course, if you live like me in Japan uh, for half the year, uh, you don't need to read the Financial Times today um, and could indeed add a great deal more to it to feel the shivers up your back um, as you watch the development of international relations in East Asia in a way which is really eerily and terrifyingly familiar. You know, I make myself really popular with my wife when we go around and look at new properties we might buy by asking whether there's a nuclear air raid shelter in the neighbourhood. <laughs> uh, on which happy note I will end. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that, that's sort of fascinating and uh, I think thank you particularly for putting the the role of individuals back into policy making. We have got time for some questions and I'm standing up because otherwise I can't see anybody in that side of the room. Uh, but uh, I'll take questions maybe two or three at a time but you'll jump in if you want to answer one. Sure. I'm gonna, I'll give you that permission because I know you'll do it anyway so it's always <laughs> better to give you permission first. That's okay. <laughs> being deputy director. <laughs> I'll have one right from the back there then I'll have um, this gentleman here with a tie and then I'll have somebody from right over there. <laughs> okay. Rush, uh, a tour de force, and particularly regarding the comments at the end uh, regarding the FT and uh, the islands. Mm, very, very food for thought. Um, a few years ago, I gave a lecture on the assassination of John F. Kennedy and ended it by saying, well, I suppose the next stop is Sarajevo and six months later I was working there for several years and when I went back in 2011 they finally opened a little museum um, Excuse me. By, by the bridge. Have you got a question please yes, sir? Because I, I know there are yes, lots of yes, other people very, who want to uh, It's ask a very short question and um, I noticed how uneasy my Serb interpreter was to go into that museum because she felt it was anti-Serb and still too sensitive. Question simply is, um, how good was the Russian um, military and military stroke political intelligence regarding the Austrians and the Germans? Uh, what did they get from Colonel Radl and um, how well did they use that and the equivalents on Germany? Or was there a major miscalculation? And I'll take the question here, please, sir. Something, something in uh, the mili military archives in Moscow. Into the microphone. Indicate, indicate yeah. that uh, the Russian military knew of the Schlieffen plan. Yeah. 
yeah. okay. by the time of the war. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and maybe my own question is, do you think that there was any way for Russia to not to share this European disaster to avoid getting involved in a European war? <laughs> That's okay. a too short question. <laughs> Big question. I'll, but I'll take one more from over here. Uh, you spoke very briefly about the relationship and um, the effects Speak of. Speak up slightly, please. Uh, you spoke very briefly about the effects of World War One on the rise of the Bolsheviks. Uh, could you perhaps uh, develop uh, further on that topic and say what could have happened potentially if revolution would have been possible, and if so, uh, what would have been the outcome? Just deal with those three. Look, I, I, I'm, giving, I'm giving a talk on Russian intelligence and the war in Cambridge, and so I mean, you know, this is an hour's talk. Um, a number of points. Firstly, I'm enormously impressed by the quality of Russian military attaches uh, and the, you know, how much they knew and how, you know, how clever they were. Um, there's some very, very interesting reporting there. Sometimes they were better than the, the diplomats. Again, just to give a little example, I mean, really intelligent briefing of Nicholas II and Izvolsky and Stalipin from the Russian embassy in Berlin. One of the effects of the archives being closed and us having all the correspondence of Benkendorf and Izvolsky is to overstress Paris and London at the expense of the Russian min missions in Berlin and Vienna. Um, the Russians in Berlin have the ambassador. Austin Zarkin is no fool. Sverbiev, who succeeds him, is very inadequate. But they also have uh, very good military attaches. They have very good financial attaches. They have old Ilya Tatishev, who's Nicholas's representative at Wilhelm's Court, all of whose letters I've read. Um, that is actually a pretty powerful combination, and the, the reporting is very interesting and intelligent. So that, I think, is the first point I'd say about Russian intelligence. I think it actually isn't fair to say, as Bill Fuller did, that there's a major failure as, as regards sharing uh, the reporting from the, the military attaches. I mean, there's a lot of their stuff in the, the foreign ministry archive. Uh, all the key reports, for instance, of the attaches in the Balkans. Uh, are copied to the foreign ministry in 14. As for Russian intelligence, totally penetrate the Austrian system, but how much difference it makes, I don't think it makes an enormous difference. Uh, they do have some information from the German system, but when they get it, they tend not to believe it because they think it's a German plant. As for the Schlieffen plan, yes, uh, the, the Russians by 1914, in fact, from about 1911, there's very interesting material in the military archive, are convinced that the, French, uh, the Germans will go west. Um, and uh, that is, after all, why uh, they agree to go onto the offensive to keep as many German troops as possible on the Eastern Front. Um, no, in inverted commas, intuit, and to some extent guess, but also do have solid information, is my comment on that. Uh, then the two biggies could Russia have avoided a European look, if you want my personal opinion, uh, Rosen was right uh, the point is to throw your arms in the air uh, declare that if the Germans want to dominate Europe, that's fine um, leave it to the British to mobilise their enormous resources to you know, put an army of two million on the continent of Europe if this is in their interests 
uh, etc., etc. In other words, frankly speaking, the policy of Stalin in 1939, and look where it got him. You know, what I'm saying is that, that you know, that, in, that would have been my line. I doubt whether it was possible after 1905, given Russian political realities, uh, it could easily have ended in disaster. I mean, the basic point, I think, you know, and that doesn't matter whether you're looking at before 14 or 39, you know, it really is a dreadfully difficult thing to do, to take responsible for Russian security at this time. At its most basic, you have two alternatives. Either you gang up with the flanking powers to deter Germany, which in the end is what the Russians did before 14. They subsequently argued that if only the British had gone in with them 100%, Germany would have been deterred. Maybe, maybe not. But the result was disaster. You know, war, revolution, catastrophe. They take Essentially what Stalin does in 39 is what Pyotr Donavo is telling Nicholas II to do in February 14. You know, this is the most intelligent advice he got. Donavo, I think, of all of the top officials. I think even more than Vitter and Stalipin is the cleverest of all. Um, and he is essentially saying to Nicholas what Stalin did. Look, let the Germans fight it out with the British and the French for a generation. It's not our business, and in that generation, we who are potentially the most powerful country in Europe will be left in peace to get on with our own affairs. Um, as I say, look what happened you know, to Stalin. And after all, Nicholas has got plenty of people saying to him from the other point of view, look, you take this line, the Germans will overrun France, and we will be faced with the situation that Alexander I was faced with in 1811, or the situation that Stalin was faced with in 1940. You know, there are no easy answers. In just this way, in the, I think, in the broader thing, that the very interesting you know, comparison which the Russians hate to make is with the Ottomans. Um, these are the two peripheral imperial great powers in Europe. The Russians suffer appallingly you know, from the creation of a great repressive military empire. Um, the Turks suffer even more from the failure to, to create such an empire. There are no easy options on the periphery of European power and European imperialism. That would be my basic line. As to, you know, no war, no revolution. Uh, you know, this is what I sort of trot around schools giving <laughs> hour-long lectures to. Look, at one level, it's simple enough. And actually, it's, it's interesting to think in these ways because it blows a hole through the idea that what happened had to happen. The Tsarist regime very, very nearly collapsed in the winter of 1905 to 6. There's even a mutiny in the 1st Battalion of the 1st Guards Regiments, the Preobrazhenskys. Um, very close to collapse seems to me that if the regime had collapsed, there is every chance you would have had a spiral to the left in the way that you did in France after 1789. It would have gone further in Russia. Even if it had, though, um, even if uh, what you could broadly define as socialist revolutionaries had come to power, quite apart from anything else, you would have had massive European intervention. There is simply no way in peacetime that the European great powers are going to allow Russia to secede from the international system to set itself up as the headquarters of international socialist revolution and to confiscate the contemporary equivalent of trillions of dollars of foreign debt. Um, nor is the Germany of William II going to allow the German communities in Russia, uh, least of all my ancestors in the Baltic German aristocracy, to have their manor houses burnt down forever. Um, the, German, you know, the, you know, the idea of the German army going in to the plaudits of French bondholders um, is an interesting, you know, and God knows what happens after that. Um, 
you know, the left might in the end have come to power out of that in Russia, given the, the horror that would have caused to Russian pride. But they might have actually come to power with a real nationalist credentials. Anything might have happened. Look, you know, when I first entered the field, you weren't allowed to talk in these terms, because the whole thing, as usual, was seen. Russian history was essentially as taught in the West. A battle within the Western intelligentsia about different ideological currents within the Western intelligentsia, within the context of the Cold War. And it was a sort of mud pie fight. Um, so one side, you know, without the war, Russia would become a lovely liberal democracy. The other side, um, Bolshevism is the legitimate heir of Russian history. But of course, there was another alternative, which is German hegemony in Europe, uh, which actually would have happened if the Germans had had some sense, which they might well not have had. It all revolves around the winter of 1617. If the Germans had not brought the Americans into the war, at the very eve of the moment when the Russian Revolution begins to take Russia out, they had it within their power to win in inverted commas the First World War. My personal opinion is that the worst thing the Germans did uh, in the early 20th century was to start the First World War. I think they were more responsible than anyone else. I think the second worst thing they did was not to win it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a couple of people have managed to catch my eyes. Jeffrey first, and then Alan, and then I've had you, please, in the middle. Shai, the, um, the Germans in the Baltic were remarkably loyal to the Tsarist regime right up to the end, or so it appears, and of course there were lots of them in the foreign yeah. ministry and elsewhere. Now, you mentioned Ukraine and yeah. how uh, imperial statesmen were worried about Ukraine. Did it occur to anybody in the documents you've read to worry about the Germans in the Baltic? After all, there weren't only German noblemen. There were quite a lot of Germans in the cities as well. Um, and... Russia, Russia's official policy towards those Germans was becoming a little more discriminatory. Did anybody worry about that? Uh, oh, I'm not supposed to. Hello, Alan. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> well, thanks, first of all, for a brilliant lecture. But um, can I just ask you one question? Uh, according to Christopher Clark's book, uh, Wilhelm II and the Germans thought that when the Sarajevo crisis broke out, uh, that Russia wouldn't fight, that Russia wasn't prepared, she wouldn't be prepared for a war for another five or six years. According to Baron von Giesel, the Austrian ambassador in Belgrade, he said in his memoirs, of course, uh, World War came as a complete shock to us. We had no idea anything was in the cards because we didn't believe that anybody would take an opposite side to Austria given the righteousness of Austria's cause. Um, his view was, and his view of other Austrians, that um, this, Serbia was actually a regime of regicides after the assassination, and the Russian Tsar was a good monarchist, and he couldn't possibly support it. Now, from what you're saying, uh, there's a number of uh, factors you've mentioned, a number of people with differing views, but whatever the views of Giesel and the Kaiser and friends, Russia did actually mobilize and back the Serbs. What I'm still not clear about after your lecture is why. Can I have just one, one last question in the middle? Lady in the middle, please. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, just kind of echoing the point that Professor Hartley made at the beginning, I really enjoyed the level of detail you went into on the individual actors, particularly within the foreign ministry. Um, following on from that, what were the limitations of those actors in terms of their influence then going on to kind of move forward this agenda of um, reflecting more the, the public opinion um, and aligning that with the Russian state? And actually, how far did they get, considering you've spoken about their wide background 
um, outside the foreign ministry, work in journalism, etc. How far did they get with integrating that with um, broader political aims, you know, democracy, socialism, sort of a broader point? You've got another three big ones there. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> look, let me go backwards this time. Um, look, there, there are obviously no socialists in the, in the Russian foreign ministry, and there are not many full-scale Democrats. Although, you know, um, there are certainly people who see this as the, the desirable end and admire Britain. And as I say, Grigory Trubetskoy has his own version of democratic peace theory. Not worked out, but I mean, that is there. Um, ah, you know, Nicholas II, had he been uh, a different man to what he was, could he have taken Russia in a different direction? Yes, if he hadn't blundered into the Russo-Japanese war, um, I think, you know, that is what I think then hugely constrains Russian options, partly because... You know, the regime loses so much legitimacy domestically. But above all, because in this era, to be weak is fatal um, in international relations. Uh, and Russia is very weak. I mean, I think part of the problem in, you know, of, 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 is that in 1904-5, Russia totally undermines the European balance of power by falling out of it and therefore opening up all sorts of possibilities and temptations and then roaring back into it. You know, partly, of course, because they're panic-stricken about how weak they are. Um, so I would sort of stress that. Um, I think, you see, had the policy in East Asia not ended in total disaster and humiliation, which would have required a much more sensible balancing of means and ends and working out just what you were going for, I don't think it is completely inconceivable that you could evolve a sort of patriotic foreign policy stressing Siberia, etc., etc., etc. I think the swing back to the Balkans is not... Well, there are all sorts of factors here, but I, you know, I think there is... That the options narrow considerably after 1905. That's all I would say. Um, sorry, that's all slightly unclear. But on to Alan's point... Um, yeah, I mean, I think the Kaiser hopes, William II, that the Russians will still feel that they're not ready and there is too much of a danger of revolution. Uh, I don't think Portales, the ambassador in, in Petersburg, believes that. Franz Josef doesn't believe it. He certainly says, no, no, I know the Russians too well. Um, it's an interesting one, Alan. If, if the Austrians had been able to show, convincingly, as was actually true, that, you know, their accusation that the weapons came from within the top level of the Serbian government, then I think it might have made a difference. It might not have made a difference to Nicholas II. It certainly would have made no difference to Norve Vremia, but it would have made a hell of a difference in London and even in Paris. And Benkendorf is a key decision-maker if Benkendorf says at the beginning, look, mates, we've had it. The British aren't going to support us on this one. So, you know, and I, you know, to do the Austrians justice, there are not many modern governments who faced with that kind of option wouldn't have had a few fingernails out pretty quickly, you know, given the stakes. I mean, it is actually a terribly interesting case in point, the debate on torture, you know. Um, 
maybe if they pulled some fingernails out, there wouldn't have been a First World War then. Um, you know, it's a horrid one, but it is. You know, this is this is the reality of politics at the top level. It'll be the reality in East Asia in my lifetime, possibly. You know, you really. Looking at foreign policy, certainly from a Russian perspective, I mean, I remember this was something which struck me when I was reading all, the, you know, all those years ago. That the people at the top of the Russian foreign ministry were not bad people on the whole within the context of their time and their class. Most of them had, genuinely had a commitment to peace. You know, they were, few of them were geniuses. This one or two of them were very clever. But what above all struck me is that, you know, out of these dispatches written in a rather dry Edwardian, you know, version, you know. You're talking about decisions which in the end probably kill about 60 million Russians, you know, let alone the rest of Europe, uh, because from the war comes, the, you know, we can go through it all. Well, I think, Alan, for the reason said, um, that in the end, in July, uh, it is partly a question of humiliation and honour, faced with such a dramatic public challenge uh, after the humiliation of 1905, after the humiliation of 1909, it just really sticks in the gullets of men of this class and era. And I don't think they were different in that sense to any of their equivalents in the great powers. But above all, it is a rational calculation, in inverted commas, rational. Um, you know, as Gears, the ambassador in Constantinople, writes, look, if the Germans and the Austrians take out our client in this way, and turn Serbia into what is essentially a protectorate. We will never have another client in the Balkans because the balance will swing so far, you know, um, that we've had it. Uh, we have also, you know, say goodbye to any chance of balancing the Germans in the Ottoman Empire. They understand what power means. If that is the case, um, you know, Given the realities of international politics, the Germans are going to push again. So we're going to have to fight soon. But we're going to have to fight with three, four extra Austrian army corps on our eastern front. Um, better to fight now. So there is a rational element there. And there is, I think, the element of honour. I think domestic politics is less important. It does count. I mean, Krivoshain says this. You know, our public opinion would not understand this, but this is one sentence out of three paragraphs. It's not fundamentally what they're talking about. Now, I think you could say with abundant justification that the whole system of international relations and the underlying assumptions are crazy. You know, um, but they are assumptions which are universal, not Russian. Um, look, personally, you know, I'm advocate. I love it. You know, I'm an advocate of the Dry Kaiserbund and the Holy Alliance, the only way to run Europe safely, but not a way that you know is going to go down terribly well in early 20th century Europe. Well, you know, better than I do that lovely, you know, when Ehrenthal is dreaming of this, and his advisors tick off the various groups in Austria, which would be you know, opposed, and you end up basically with Franz Josef and his favourite pussycat are in favour of this and no one else, but it's just the same on the Russian side. You know, you have to find, to find a genuine advocate of the Dry Kaiserbund by 1914. It's old Vladimir Mishirsky. Um, and as you might say, he was not the most popular figure in Russia at the time. Uh, as to Geoffrey... Um, a bit in terms of worry about the Balts, Geoffrey. A bit. You do find this surfacing. Um, and you do find it in the documents. Um, it's not 
Well, and of course you find it in the legislation against German colonists, you know. Um, so it is there. Um, but it is not the overriding issue. Ukraine is beginning to push itself up the agenda quickly. Um, partly because, after all, the Germans and the Austrians are encouraging the Ukrainians in a way that no one is daring to encourage the Baltic Germans. No, I think what becomes, I mean, it's clear from what the Kaiser himself says to, what's his name, you know, the Professor Schiemann in Berlin. As long as the Tsarist regime is there, um, there is no chance of us intervening in the, Bal- in the Baltic. But if it falls um, and the German community is treated in the way that it certainly will be, given what's going on right now, we will move. Now, he w- <laughs> William was you know, great at saying things. He might have had some problems from Social Democrats and others. But, of course, once it's not just the manor houses or even the individuals of the Baltic gentry who are dying, but a broader German community, then I'd, you know, I find it hard to see. Uh, that Germany is just going to sit there, particularly with the French bondholders going crazy behind them. You know, um, you know, maybe this is the basis for a united Europe. Um, you know, uh. I've been told I've got time for just a, a couple of very quick questions. I think you were, you've been uh, one person you've been asking to give a question. You can be the last one. <laughs> Please keep them quick, otherwise you'll be thrown out of the building. Well, I'm just interested in knowing, obviously, you're a British historian writing on these subjects, so the point I'm interested to know is, is is there a consensus amongst Russian historians today about all these points, about the role of Russia in in 1914, or are there there different schools within Russian history today, historians today? And and you're you're the last one. You're the last one. Thank you. I get a sense of a lot of high extent of fatalism within the uh, the Russian decision makers at the time. I think your comparison to the Spanish during the Spanish-American War is very apt. So my question, I suppose, would be: Is there any reason for the Russians to think that they might actually win this, or at least that somehow this is not going to be desperately costly somehow? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Good question. Um, look, in terms of Russian historians, yes, there are different schools. I mean. The only thing I would say is that, you know, this was something which was very much not looked at. Well, I mean, there was a lot of Russian historiography in, in Soviet times, but it was a slightly difficult issue. It had, of course, to be understood within the overall conception of the ideology about imperialism. Um, and after that, and increasingly loudly, um, there was a defense of Russia and its support of the Slavs. I mean, since then... It's going to be very interesting what's going to come out in the next year or two. There will be, I suspect, it would be very interesting, and it's relevant to, of course, attitudes towards China now, given the parallels between China now and Germany before 14. I suspect you will get liberals talking about ganging up with Anglo-French liberalism in the defense of civilization. And you will get nationalists maybe saying... Uh, let the nasty outside world get on with its own battles and leave us in peace. Um, It'll be complicated, though not nearly as complicated as when 1917 comes along. (laughs) That is going to be an interesting one, Um, uh, not least for the regime. Uh, Sorry, I could go on forever, but it's not easy. Fatalism is absolutely right, yes. yes. There's a lovely, or not lovely, but... I mean, Benkendorf, the brother of the ambassador you know, who was the Oberhof Marshal, uh, writes to his brother, 
February 14, I think, is it maybe 1st of March, no one here wants war, but the feeling is increasingly growing uh, that it is not going to be avoided. Given the enormity of the issues at stake, by which he fundamentally means the straits and the whole future of the Ottoman inheritance, and coming over the horizon, the whole issue of the European relationship between the Germans and the Slavs. Uh, Benkendorf, obviously, you know, you only have to get the name. I mean, this, you know, he's quite subtle about this. But after all, again, you know, he writes to his brother immediately after the war begins and says, the second I heard the terms of the Austrian ultimatum, I was convinced we would not avoid war. It was too convenient a moment for the Germans and Austrians. Um, they you know, chose the tactical moment. But also, again, the issues were so great that it seemed hard to me that we would resolve them peacefully. And that does take you back to some of the conceptions of foreign policy, even you know, Martins, who's the professor of international law, the key lawyer in the foreign ministry, in his great term. And again, it brings out the sort of fundamentally pacific element in the foreign ministry. You know, he, this is not a, any kind of warmonger, but you know, he says there are issues which can never be resolved. Uh, by anything, any other means but war because they are absolutely fundamental to the security and he didn't use the word but he meant it, identity of states and there are you know, an awful lot of people within the elite on both sides by then uh, who think that Ilya Tatishev is fascinating reporting back to Nicholas II his conversations with Moltke um, in 14 you know, very interesting because of course Moltke knows that Tatishev is a court general and that is in many ways sympathetic to Germany. Um, so is talking to him with a sort of honesty, you know, because after all, in the end, these, both these men are in the same profession. They're, they're professional soldiers who know that in the end they will fight and if necessary their sons will die in defense of, you know, certain interests. And actually, I suspect they probably agreed that the issues were too great, you know. Of course, it's madness um, in retrospect, but that is the way, you know, that the mentalities were. That, that's my sense of things, anyway. But fatalism really does matter, you know. And I interpret Sergei Sazonov, c'est la guerre européenne, you know, when he says, I think that is his view, too. You know, this is it. After all, if you read the Russian docu diplomatic documents right through 13, back to the autumn of 12, there's this constant drumbeat of, you know, we could have an Austrian ultimatum and an attempt to push tomorrow. Um, they're terribly aware of this. They're absolutely geared up to it. And actually, at all moments, from the beginning of the Balkan Wars, uh, you know, if there's a real push of this sort, if the Austrians invade Serbia, there will be war. You know, the decisions are made before July. I think that's why I actually think, although it's appallingly dramatic, actually the July crisis from the Russian perspective is the least interesting. Because my view is, given the position they were in by then, it is very hard to see them taking a different line. Well, thank you very much. I think, to say, Chai, I think my only disappointment is that you didn't turn up to give this lecture in these Tsarist military pyjamas. And I did. <laughs> I got my <laughs> Next time we'll expect that. <laughs> but thank you very much. It's a fascinating talk. I think we can tell from the questions it's been really thought-provoking. Thank you.